0: All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And today we're going to be talking about a, a pretty serious topic here. This is a controversial topic. Right, people have strong feelings either, either way. Um, I, and I'm just going to put a little caveat here. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. I'm not trying to make anybody feel like they are not feeling validated uh, because this is a chronic pain topic, but what I do want to do is at least present the the best evidence available. This is evidence that is not influenced by pharmaceutical companies. This is evidence that I is not in any way influenced by me. I don't make any medic any uh, money prescribing these types of pills. Um, They certainly don't drive any sort of practice model for me. They don't fuel my clinic. They don't allow me to do things to people because I'm writing their drugs. And the topic that we're talking about today is opioids, also known as painkillers, particularly strong painkillers, narcotic medications. Kind of depends on whose terminology that you want to use with these. But these are the drugs like morphine, prototypical one. These are all medications that came from um, basically the opium poppy. Opium being the 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 natural source of these type of substances and uh, oxycontin is in this class fentanyl is in this class Um, things like hydrocodone which is the generic ingredient within Vicodin which is the number one prescribed medication in the United States If you can believe it that just blows my mind and says quite a bit about uh, our society in many ways. What we're going to be talking about is opioids for pain, particularly opioids for chronic non-cancer pain. Chronic non-cancer pain is really 86% or more of the market for prescription opioid medications. Um, This is uh, not—this was created in a lot of ways— by pharma they they realized that these medications were originally used for cancer pain people dying dying of cancer uh palliative care uh, of course, they were also used after surgeries and traumas and things like that but um there was this massive market that they knew about this non-malignant, non malignant non non cancer pain uh and it quickly escaped into that that uh, that avenue there now there has been some substantial harms associated with this. We have almost 50 people dying every day from prescription, opi- uh, prescription opioid overdoses and death. Um, when we look at the, uh, that, though, that's, that, that's, that's tragic. Um, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, if you look at each death, we have seven non-fatal overdoses. And for each death, we have 10 treatment admissions. And for each death, we have 32 ER visits for misuse of the medication. For each death, we have 130 people becoming dependent upon opioid medications because they are highly addictive. And for each death, there are 825 new recreational users. So this medication is really, in the deaths associated with it, tragic though they may be, is just the tip of the iceberg on the the swath of destruction that we really, really sort of unleashed upon um, our, our country, and all in the name, at least initially, at least superficially for a good cause. Now, when I do this lecture for physicians, uh, when I actually give talks on this, I used to have a um, slide in the beginning where... We're really said that road to hell is, is uh, paved with good intentions or the original Latin phrase from which that was developed. And uh, it's true. I do not think that um, overall, I, I, I'm a, I, I am a what we call pessimistic optimist. I do think people want to do the right things. I certainly think that most physicians want to do the right things. I think things get obscured at some points. I do think um, there is some malfeasance out there. Uh, When people are trying to simply make money and they forget that when we are doing anything with healthcare or with patients, that these are people's lives that we're talking about. Uh, There's been some atrocious things that have been done in the pharmaceutical world with marketing this particular um, substance. Uh, But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. So how, how did we get to where we are now where we have almost 50 people dying every day when we have hydrocodone or Vicodin being the number one prescribed drug in the United States? Well, if you kind of look back, if you want at a threshold moment in time, it was really 1996. And in 1996, there was a consensus statement on the treatment of pain. This came from the American Pain Society, American County of Pain Medicine. And what they sort of said, and this was released towards physicians and the and, and, uh, society at large, was they said that pain was undertreated, that um, really there was all these people who were writhing around in pain and physicians were not treating it, that we were not doing something to uh, make this pain better in a lot of ways. Now, I have done some previous episodes on pain itself. I'm going to do some future episodes on pain as well. But this whole idea that pain, the, the complexity that is pain, how it is created, how it can be intensified, how it can be improved, how it has nothing to do with tissue damage, okay, that, it, that hurt by itself, that pain by itself does not imply harm. This statement just uh, sort of aggravated that, that somehow, again, saying that there's something there that, that uh, doctors have a responsibility to and that pain is no longer an individual's um, perception. It's not a, something that an individual is experiencing, but somehow in some way in a paternalistic view that physicians control your pain, that it is up to us to control your pain. Now, along with this also uh, was this idea with this consensus statement, in which they said, they said opioids are addictive medications. However, they said opioid addiction is rare in chronic pain. And we're going to touch on that a little bit more. They also said that opioids are safe and effective for the treatment of chronic pain. And they said overall that it's the physician's fear of opioids, the fear that they didn't want to harm their patients, the fears that they were scared to cause addiction in their patients um, that was causing all this suffering because we should be prescribing these more of these medications. They also emphasized the need over that time. Um, there were some other, um, uh, you know, this sort of caught hold in a lot of different ways, not just the pain, uh, the, the, these these pain guidelines, but this idea overall that somehow pain was not understood, uh, that the vast majority of primary, care, that, uh, physicians, particularly primary care, frontline physicians, somehow didn't understand pain, didn't know how to do anything for it, despite the fact that they had been treating, you know, you've had primary care physicians for since basically ancient Egypt, um, and they've been treating pain because the major driver that people go to the doctor, but somehow they didn't know it anymore. Um, Kind of paralleled with this is the rise of the pain specialist, people like me, the very first, you know, kind of formalized pain fellowship. I'm pretty sure started in the mid 90s as well. And that quickly proliferated to other institutions where we now have this formal training in pain specialist, us, uh, you know, high and mighty specialists that knew so much about pain. Uh, and that everybody else didn't know enough. And we used to kind of emphasize that there was inadequate training uh, when it came to treating pain, that people didn't know the stuff. That the, And then all together, the government, non-governmental organizations like Jayco, uh, Big Pharma in a lot of ways, which we're going to touch on, and the media itself kind of grabbed onto this to create this public awareness of a crisis. Now, this kind of culminated over time as people were moving through and getting this idea that pain, pain, pain was something that we weren't treating enough. Uh, with Jayco in 2001 uh, designated a vital sign. So vital signs are like your blood pressure and your heart rate and things like that, things that we can measure uh, objectively, meaning if I'm going to measure blood pressure and someone else comes along and they know how to measure blood pressure and they're going to measure it, they're going to get pretty close to what I did. Um, but now that we're going to take pain uh, and we're going to call that a vital sign, um, and they did that in 2001. Now, there are a couple other things that you need to start an epidemic, and what I like is from the book *The Tipping Point* by Malcolm Gladwell. He talks about three particular factors involved to start an epidemic. The tipping point really is, you know, if you if you're filling a cup full of water, if you fill the water all the way up to the top of the cup, and you add some more water, it actually won't uh, fall out of the glass. The reason being is that it it um, will cause like almost a little dome-shaped thing. And um, I forgot all the physics principles involved, but basically the water will kind of hold it together and it'll rise above the edge of that cup until you get to the point where you add just that one particular drop that pushes it over the tipping point, breaks that kind of seal, and then the water runs down the side. And the way Malcolm Gladwell describes it, he says there's really two factors of this. There's the stickiness factor. There's the power of what he calls context uh, which is really a specific content t- content of a message that renders its impact memorable. And then there's the law of the few. And what the law of the few is, is really, he states, is the success of any kind of social epidemic is highly dependent on the involvement of people with a particular and rare set of social gifts. So if you look at these three factors all together, we, we have the stickiness factor, this, the specific content that renders its impact memorable. That's really pain. All of us have experienced pain. All of us... It don't really like pain, or we shouldn't. That's part of the definition. Is it's an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience. Pain drives things, makes us want to do stuff. It's reason. If we touch a hot stove, we don't touch hot stoves because we learn from it. Uh, but we're kind of familiar with what the sensation of pain, and it's very memorable. We don't want to see people writhing around in pain. We don't want people to have pain. Um, so it's really sticky when you look at it. When you look at the power of context, this idea that epidemics are sensitive to the conditions and circumstances, the times and places. Um, we kind of look from that consensus statement in the 1996. And over time, this idea of the war on pain, that was some, some typical language, particularly in the late 90s, early 2000s, that we are on a war of on pain. Some people will even say that now, that somehow we're going to extinguish uh, this uh, subjective experience, experience. And we've had about as good effect on that as we've had with the war on terror. But uh, the law, I guess it kind of says that when you're doing wars against, against things that are really sort of inherent in the human nature, uh, that doesn't tend to work out really well. Anyway, the, the law of the few is this idea that the success of any kind of social epidemic depended on the involvement of people with a particular and rare set of, of, of social gifts or something. And a lot of few in this really that really kind of fueled this epi- epi- epidemic was the new prescription medication. And that medication Was Oxycontin. Now, Oxycontin was released by Purdue Pharma in the same year. As the American Pain Society, American Academy of Pain Medicine guidelines, that was 1996, and it underwent an unprecedented marketing campaign. If you have any sort of interest in business, in advertising, in marketing, um, it's it's just absolutely brilliant in how they orchestrated this. A little bit sick on the devastation it caused, um, but be, these guys knew exactly what they were doing. They're brilliant, 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 brilliant marketers, and what they did. One of the first things they did was they profiled people who were already writing a lot of opioid medications. Got to remember, in the mid-90s, people most people weren't because there was this fear. They were using it for things like cancer, pain, etc. But overall, there wasn't a lot of opioid use. But there were a couple outliers, just as everywhere. There's always some outliers doing it. And what Oxy, uh, Purdue Pharma did is they identified them. Now, why would they do that? Most people would say, well, if they're already writing the drugs, let's go after people who aren't writing the drugs. And that's the complete wrong thing to do if you really want to market or increase market share. If you go after people who are already using similar drugs or similar products, they are more likely to use yours as well. They already bought into the concept that opioids worked well for whatever it is that they were treating it. And so Purdue Pharma went in and they wined and dined them so much that between 1996 and 2001, they did over 40 uh, all-expenses-paid symposia where they took these liberal prescribers and they brought them to five-star resorts with their families and wined and dined them and occasionally went through some talks and they recruited and trained them as speakers. Why this was brilliant is because physicians have a tendency to listen to other physicians um, more than they would listen to other people. And so now you have their peers, their peer group, physician peer group, going out and telling other physicians how uh, you know pain is undertreated and how these medications are so safe that they should be prescribing as well. Now, concurrent with these, these physician speakers, Purdue Pharma funded over 20,000 educational programs between 1996 and 2002. I remember these. You would go to a conference and they would, again, wine and dine you as a medical student or as a resident or as a fellow. They would uh, pay for things. They would give you stuff. Um, and try to teach you about how great OxyContin was and how, how you really needed to be treating pain aggressively with these opioid medications. Purdue Pharma also recognized, again, that, that uh, non-cancer pain was a larger market than cancer pain and aggressively targeted. We tra- They started uh, targeting things like blow back pain. They started going with whole body pain, headaches, et cetera. And so much so that by 1999, 86% of the total opioid market, the market for these drugs that had been previously kind of limited to cancer pain and really things like surgery or if you had a broken leg and things like that, um, that this new non-malignant pain market became 86% of the market share they also trained their represent their reps the sales reps that went out to the offices and stuff to basically tell pa- uh, people the prescribers the doctors that were prescribing it that the risk of addiction with the, with these particular medications with opioids as a whole these strong painkillers in oxycontin in particular that the risk of addiction was less than 1%. Now interestingly the paper that they used to justify this was really um well, actually, a lot of these papers that were used to even justify the American Pain Society guidelines in 1996 were just not really papers. One, which was referenced often, well, it was it's known as Porter and Jack, was um, published in 1980 in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now I have a weird story with that. People who know me now and uh, my feelings about opioids and particularly with the way we're treating pain in general. Um, when I was a anesthesia resident at the University of Chicago, I was doing a review paper with a mentor of mine. And uh, our hypothesis was how pain protected people from addiction. Completely false, by the way. And uh, we kept finding this paper, Porter and Jack, Porter and Jack, Porter and Jack, being referenced over and over again about why opioids were so safe. Now, back then, it was a little bit harder to get papers. For Right now, it's actually... Uh, I just love it because I get papers all the time and I uh, have some wonderful people helping me that make sure that I can get these p- a lot of published papers. But back then, it was a lot harder. You had to order from the library. And when I finally got Porter and Jick when he ordered it, it is literally one paragraph, one paragraph. We're talking like 10 to 12 to 15, maybe 15 lines um, that is not a study, despite it being cited as one. It's really someone's letter to the editor saying, hey, we've treated a bunch of people and um, we doesn't really look like any of them got addicted. That was really what that was. I mean, this is not a paper. This is really not substantial evidence at all. A lot of the other evidence um, used were just small, small small-scale studies. Um, One particular was 38 patients. Most of them had less than four years of duration of pain. Most of them were on lower doses of opioid medication, certainly less than what we're seeing in this day and age. We're talking not very much. Um, in, in that particular study, only half of the patients, so 19 of the 38, were even actively being followed. And they sort of extrapolated this, saying how these these medications worked so well. Now, even in that study, though, if you look at those 38 patients, they, there was half, almost 30 to 50% of that, that small cases still had continued to have severe pain, or at least described severe pain, despite these drugs. So they weren't even doing very well in these studies, but somehow they said... Hey, we did these. You know, there was a definite push. Um, was there anything else involved with that? Maybe, um, but but people don't like to hear that if you're getting funded or if you're being a, on the speakers bureau for a for a for a pharmaceutical uh, company that somehow that influences your clinical judgment. Of course, it's contrary to what we know about cognitive biases or thought, thinking biases and kind of counter to what the evidence shows. But we'll just kind of leave it there. So what happened then, 1996, we had, again, these guidelines telling physicians they didn't know how to treat pain and that they were under-treating it. We had a new prescription opioid. We had this idea that we were under-treating pain. And then we had rampant increase since then. Now, two years later, 1998, is when direct-to-consumer advertising of pharmaceutical Drugs was allowed, um, which has you know just sort of fueled this idea that we can treat everything with a pill, and that there's anything if you feel sad, mad, happy, glad, upset, shy, um, eat too much one day that you need to take a drug for it. But we've had this dramatic, dramatic increase in the amount of opioid prescriptions. Now, so much so that. We had, again, quadrupled the rate of opioid prescriptions between 1999 and 2008, quadrupled the number of people um, that had overdose deaths associated with it, so kind of parallel the same thing, and six times increased rate in the substance treatment or people entering substance abuse treatment over that same window of time. It was astronomical. Now, the other thing about that is it's important to remember the United States, we're only 4% of the world's population, 4%, that's it. But when you look at the world's opioids, these strong painkillers, again, these, some of the strongest medications we know have some really substantial side effects, 4% of the world's population is consuming 80% of the world's opioid supply. 80%. We're swimming in this stuff. When it comes to hydrocodone or Vicodin, 99% of the world's uh, uh, supply is is consumed in the United States. Now, the, one of the big pictures, I'm a big-picture person, if these medications were sub, were doing something, meaning they were helping people control their pain, eliminate their pain, or improving their lives, which is what we would think we were doing with, with therapy, then the results should scream because we are using so much of them. People should be dancing in the streets. People should be out there working on the job. There should be hardly any disability due to chronic pain. And as we're going to talk about a little bit more, we don't find that. We still have three of the top five reasons for uh, Social Security disability, particularly in younger Social Security disability, being from pain itself. Now, all this factor, again, escalated, escalated opioids. In fact, in the early 2000s, um, we had uh, reports where people were getting sued because they were not supposedly treating people's pain. It caused a lot of fear in physician circles, and people were became very... Um, uh, scared to not write these medications in a lot of ways. And so they increased their prescriptions. Now, what we obviously discovered was that this was um not doing what we thought. So as we said, we increased the number of prescriptions, we increased the number of people dying, and we increased the number of people in substance abuse treatment programs. And then 2011, the paper came out in the Annals of Internal Medicine that basically said that when the American Pain Society and the American Academy of Pain Medicine issued their consensus statement on supporting this idea that that chronic opioid therapy, that we can see people on these strong painkillers for who knows how long and that you can continue to escalate them, that all of the uh, the evidence used in in that particular census statement was not true, that the experience since then, the clinical experience since then, is that these are not low risk of addiction, um, that there is not low risk of misuse, and there is not low risk of overdose from these medications, that that, uh, this practice paradigm um, failed. Now, what else happened around that same time frame? So that was 2011. And really within about a year or two, uh, there were some really interesting things going on in the world of pain. This happened more because of law enforcement than it had to do anything with the medical community. And it's certainly nothing to do with with the majority of the pain community at large. Um, But what, what happened is because there was people dying... Lots and lots—we're talking thousands of people dying, like fifteen, sixteen thousand uh, people a year dying from these things, and the and the strain on law enforcement. Uh, there was a big push from victims' families, from law enforcement, from some physicians uh, to kind of pursue this a little bit more. And so the Senate started launching some investigations into these prescription drug o- overdose or this prescription drug epidemic. And what they found was a lot of patient advocacy groups. So we have all these sort of supposedly grassroots groups that are out there um, promoting pain and promoting uh, how we're under-treating it and how we need to be writing these medications more and more and more. Um, What they found, particularly some of the bigger ones, were funded almost entirely by the pharmaceutical industry. So these are not grassroots organizations. What they are is really kind of a shell, you can almost think of a shell corporation um, that were supported by Big Pharma to promote Agenda that all just happened to benefit that pharmaceutical company. Uh, this is not, by the way, unique to pain, um, or at least I should say to opioids. This is also, uh, if you look at a lot of medical conditions um, and you look at the funding of some of these you know, advocacy groups, uh, they get a lot of funding from Big Pharma for many of them. Now, let's just let's just ask ourselves again, though, if we are prescribing so much of this medication, so much that four percent of the world's population is consuming 80 percent of the world's opioid supply. uh, What are they doing for chronic pain? They've got to be doing something if we're going to see it. And what we find when we talk about chronic pain is that there's very limited studies. And this is because the randomized controlled trials, which kind of uses the gold standard for evaluating medical therapies. There's very few of them. Um, none of them really uh, were long in duration. There was one that was about 16 weeks, but most of them were between four and six weeks. So, again, this is a therapy that we were advocating that people stay on for essentially life. And yet the ther- the studies that we had on them were brief in duration. Um, what we also found is that uh, they kind of excluded people that had any problems with substance abuse, cr- people who had any anxiety, people who had any depression, uh, people who had any family history of um uh, problems with other substances, et cetera. Um, this is not what we typically see in clinical practice. Uh, quite a few of the patients that we have on are seen on chronic opioid therapy also have had a history of substance abuse, um, also have had uh, have some significant anxiety and depression. Um, this does not, and I am not implying in any way that somehow that makes pain not real if you have anxiety and depression. That is it. That, that just infuriates me that this whole idea Uh, that somehow if you have mental illness, which can be more devastating than a quote-unquote biological illness like heart disease, um, but this idea that somehow that makes pain either not real, which is, again, not true. I can take any person and change your experience of pain and by not even touching you, changing the context, changing where you are, topic for another day. But Anyway, the people that we typically see in clinical practice who are on these medications, particularly high doses, were not the people who are on these studies. They're excluded. Now, In these particular studies, though, even these these, what we would really call low-risk patients, patients who are low risk of um, having any difficulties with these medications, um, it didn't eliminate pain in them. In fact, only about one in three of these patients showed any improvement. And we're talking an improvement between 30 and 50% uh, decreased report in pain in a short duration. Remember these these studies were only 4 to 6 weeks long for most cases. There were no studies that had greater than 50% pain reduction that was that lasted for any degree of time and that these opioids, these these strong painkillers were not superior to other pain medications that we were using. Okay? Now, the reason that is that's important and I would say even just to kind of pull this all together here is we ha- the studies were patients who were not the typical people who have the worst chronic pain. That in those uh, those limited um, patients, I and mean, what we would almost want to say is the, the the patient safest that we would expect. If you're going to see a good result, you would. Um, less than half of them, actually, or say one in three of them showed any benefit from it. And then we didn't even eliminate all their pain. The reason that becomes important because if you're only limiting 30 to 40 percent of someone's pain is what I call and which I will now name uh, the Cucaro pain uh, pie of pain model. And what that means is if you imagine your pain is a as a big gigantic berry pie and what happens when you cut out a section of say a blueberry pie or a raspberry pie and it's just a sliver, we'll say 30% of that pie, what happens when you leave that pie? Well, the filling tends to ooze out and cover the pan again. So much so that that if you have 70% of that pie remaining, you know, we now fill up the whole pie, the pie pan. And for pain, if we eliminate 30% of someone's pain within three to six months, certainly within a year, that 70% that we have remaining becomes the new 100% of pain. And there are multiple different reasons for this. A lot of it has to do with how our brain works um, and how memory works, et cetera. But if you're taking away 30% of someone's pain, it becomes really. You don't notice it anymore because it said that 70% becomes the new baseline 100% of your pain. And uh, this has also been found clinically or in, in studies. If you look at the pain score, which is, you know, Jacob wants everybody to have their report of pain measured all the time, and there's some problems with that. But there was a study that came out of Massachusetts General. That found over time for chronic pain and chronic opioids that increasing opioids, decreasing opioids, or keeping it the same um, did not change the pain score. So if you over time, and the average uh, average length of time for these patients in this particular study was 704 days, there, they, you know, they had some people that went up on these doses and decreased the doses, and no change on the amount of opioids that they were taking, and there was no correlation basically with their pain score. The pain score stayed the same. And this lack of correlation was consistent, whatever the type of pain that we're going to talk it. And we like to divide pain into all these different categories. I don't like to do that because all pain is basically pain. And it didn't matter how old they were, didn't matter what sex they were, but as you change the dose, the pain score seemed the same. Now, the other big push that we say is what about function? Okay, It may not improve your pain, but somehow if we give you these drugs that we improve function. And overall. There's really not a lot of great evidence to support that. There's nothing conclusive. Um, The few kind of positive studies don't really have any overwhelming data. And again, if you're taking, again, 4% of the world's population, we're taking 80% of the world's opioid medications, we would expect to see substantial improvement, at least somewhere, and we're not seeing it. Quality of life, another one. Well, it helps with quality of life. And there was a study, a very interesting study, that compared patients with chronic pain um, on chronic opioids, these chronic painkillers with people who had chronic pain who were not on these chronic opioid therapy. And what we found over time in that particular study was that across multiple quality of life scores, physical function, how, you know, dealing in socially, getting out and seeing your friends, uh, emotionally, how you were feeling and your quality of life overall is the people who were on those opioids scored substantially, or in medical terms, significantly less than those who had chronic pain but were not on the opioids. Now, how does that happen? Because um, I, I've seen and I've met and I've and I helped some, more than a few people who had opioids that get off of these medications. Um, in the military, we sometimes had to take people off whether they said they wanted to or not. And, the, and really, is uh, if you kind of imagine, there's that old analogy about the frog in the pot of water, right? And the frog is in the water. And then if you slowly heat up that water over time, the frog doesn't notice a difference. And then the frog eventually cooks and dies. OK, um, I actually wanted to look up that saying. And apparently uh, the studies that were done on that were in the 1800s and they've never been duplicated in, in the exact same way. And so we're not exactly sure if that's true. But the concept remains valid is, is if you do small, small incremental changes, you can feel worse overall, or you can actually be doing worse overall and not know any difference because there's not a lot of contrast to it. Now, when it comes to pain, we actually see that experimentally in a lot of different ways, meaning um, you would think over time that uh, pain is pain, but it isn't. Uh, There's something called peak end rule when it comes to pain, meaning we tend to remember when the pain is the worst and also when the pain ends. Uh so if there's a quick and abrupt end to the pain, say you have um, you know, you have cert- you have a broken arm and someone numbs up your arm or something, that would be the end of that pain episode for you. Uh some some fascinating studies that have shown that people will actually experience more pain overall, longer durations of pain, uh in different context, uh depending on that peak end rule, if we can sort of model modulate that a little bit. Um so highly malleable, but, but the, the, the big important thing is as we take these medications, a lot of them were started for acute pain. One of uh, uh, the sayings going is all chronic pain comes from acute pain. Acute pain being new pain, broken leg, et cetera, something. Um, But as you're using these medications over time, that you stop noticing the difference. You don't see what is happening to the quality of life. You don't see the fact that when you're medicating um, or using these strong opioids, it's not just actually reducing the negative side of pain, but it's actually kind of reduces the the positive side of emotion too. Uh, and it's a whole different ball game over there. Now, I am not saying that that strong painkillers have no use at all. That is not true. They are a very important class of medications, basically for what we were using them for about thirty years ago, and that was for if you were in a car accident and you had a bunch of broken limbs and broken bones, if you just had a big operation where we kind of cut open your belly or, or I don't know, gave you a new knee or whatever, those would be some things where we the opioids become useful for. And I'm going to kind of clarify that in just a second. If you have cancer, particularly... Active cancer, we're not talking about a history of cancer or cancer that is not, you know, in remission, but active cancer where that tumor is increasing in size uh, or it's increasing in the amount of tumor in your body that is rapidly progressing through your body. In those situations, there seems to be some value of opioids. Reason being is we don't have a lot of other medications that can catch up with it. Now, what both of those types of scenarios have is what we would call clinical or changing pathology meaning there is something going on in the body that is changing so you had a bone it is now broken it has changed you have you know cancer is developing that um that cancer is getting bigger it is causing change in the the nerve transmission from the body and in that situation those those nerves that are involved which we most of them we call nociceptive nerves now that is important different nociceptive nerves uh are kind of these little warning nerves that fire and interrupt our attention. They do not imply that you have tissue damage, although in these cases they do. And they don't, they should not be called pain fibers, although they typically will be will be called pain fibers. A lot of medical data, or at least I say a lot of medical literature, will call kind of uses the term no susception interchangeably with the word pain, and they are not the same thing. No susception is only a nerve fiber going to the brain. The brain then takes that nerve fiber, puts it together with a host of other things, including what's happening around you right now, uh, what the you know the situation that you're in, how you're feeling, et cetera, to create the overall experience of pain. But anyway, when you have changing pathology, changing what's called nociceptive information, then and, uh, opioids seem to do better. But for the rest of it, chronic pain, again, if you don't have a broken bone, something like that, the data does not substantiate that. In fact, what we do know for 90% of the chronic pain conditions, those big ones being low back pain, headaches, and fibromyalgia, these whole body type pain syndromes, there's no data that substantiates this, says that long-term opioid therapy is helping people. In fact, what we're doing is we're harming them. Function, you know, are we improving people's function? No. Quality of life, as I said, no. Um, there's some other interesting kind of information when you look at... Uh, uh, even these opioids in acute pain, so just acute back pain, which I'm not going to get into um, other than to say that there's a kind of frightening because they're showing that people who have taken these medications uh, pretty early uh, on with, you know, we were talking within the first couple of weeks of injury tend to have worse outcomes than those with who were getting stratified. So we're talking to patients with the same characteristics as those who got these opioid medications and those who didn't for acute pain. Uh, the people who got those opioid medications seem to do worse over time, so that's kind of scary. Um, now, the the big, big, big pitch of the pish of this, and I, I am not, again, I'm I am not trying to upset anybody. Okay, I'm not trying to take away your medications. I am not trying to uh, invalidate people's pain. In fact, that infuriates me. Infuriates me when people are talking about that opioids really somehow makes pain that if you're not taking opioids then the pain is not real or if you should not be on opioids if someone's saying that you shouldn't be on opioids then you're saying their pain is not real all pain is real unless someone's lying and almost nobody is lying about your pain okay I can say from experience I can only think of a couple people again I don't can't say for sure uh, but they had more of what we would call malingering because there were some work uh, issues or there there there's some secondary gain issues and those were two people two people Okay the vast other majority were people who were, had pain the vast majority are people who were suffering but the difference is is if we're giving a medication that the overwhelming amount of data does not say that they're helping in fact the the, the data strongly suggests that we're harming people with these medications then we need to stop it okay now people will say, well, I'm on these medications and, I, and that's not me, and, and you know I may still have pain, and I may not be doing as much as I used to, but it's the only thing that's keeping me around. And I'm going to say this is a lot like, again, like that pot of water that's been heating up over time. Because if you've been on this stuff for a long period of time, you don't remember, because of the way our brain sort of worked. you don't remember what it was to be not on these medications. And having taken people off of these medications, so I've seen them both, on the medications and off the medications, and I can't think of a single person who had been on long-term opioid therapy high dose opioid therapy that when they were off of these medications looked worse than when they looked on the medications were there some rough patches when they were coming off them yes uh those are there if you if you have some strategies behind it and you go in a very low and slow technique um, those are those are quite manageable but i will tell tell you it, it's like it's like bringing back someone to life again uh there was a One particular case I'm remembering, this was back when I was in San Diego with the military young lady who was on just a ton of these medications, so much so that she could barely stay awake in in the chair when she would come into clinic. And um, she was actually, she had young children at home, child protective services were being called because uh, her her babies would be crying and nobody was coming uh, to console them because she would be just, just, so drugged on these things and these were prescribed by a physician uh that she couldn't take care of them effectively so the the decision was made that she needed to come off these we slowly slowly took her off of these medications okay um saw her frequently did she still complain of pain yes let's just say that she complained of a six or seven out of pain just like that study out of massachusetts general showed though it was really interesting because that pain score seemed to stay the same it did not change significantly. It was always six to seven out of the pain. The difference was when she came in, uh, she would engage. We can talk to her. When she was sitting in the examination chair, she had her head up. She had she was bright eyed. She was listening to us. She was no longer complaining that her hair was falling out. She was, you know, child protective services wasn't being called. So while she was still complaining of pain, that she was still having the six out of seven out of ten out of pain, her quality of life, if you looked at being engaged in the world, being able to participate in life, being able to see and interact with those around her and take care of her kid, kids had improved substantially. So all I'm saying with this is these medications, if you know, you know, the, these were pushed upon society in a way that is frankly just unbelievable. I started at the beginning of this podcast talking about how I don't believe um, physicians are actively trying to harm people. I don't. Physicians are good people. Pharmaceutical companies, I'm not so sure about. But what I can tell you is the evidence used to push these medications was unbelievably poor. That some particular institutions and some particular corporations, particularly some pharmaceutical companies, made multiple billions, billions of dollars on these medications. Sure, they may have gotten fined hundreds of millions of dollars. But when you're making billions, that's a drop in the bucket we have transitioned in in a lot of ways these prescriptions drive the way that people are seeing pain specialists i've seen abuse after abuse happen where you know people don't want to write these drugs because inherently we kind of see what the results are which aren't great so they're being going to um quote unquote pain specialists who will write them for them um a lot of times and this is illegal but a lot of times, these clinics will then push for injections. I have literally seen in charts where someone was told that uh, it was noted in the chart. The patient didn't want the injection, but they were, the patient was told that if they want their prescriptions at that particular clinic, that they um, really need to undergo the therapy that was recommended, the therapy being injections. Um, I mean, it's just absolutely astounding. And until we come to terms, until we actually talk about the fact I'm talking even as physicians, that the overwhelming majority of evidence, we know who not to prescribe these medications for. We know what the major risk factors for, but we don't know who for chronic pain does well with them overall. Again, objective data, objective research showing this. Then we really should be questioning what we're doing with these medications in the first place. Again, that's for chronic pain. That's not for acute pain. If you break your leg, if your car accident, if you have a surgery and you're taking these medications, um, because there's at this point in time, there's not a whole lot other unless you're having some sort of, you know, anesthesia, we would numb up your leg or do some other stuff. But um, if you don't have access to that, um, you would use them for that. But for long term, these are dangerous medications and we are killing people daily, so I said, 46 to 50 people are dying a day because of these medications. We have 825 new recreational users because of these medications. The number one place people are getting this medication is from physicians as a legal prescription It is the number one drug of abuse for adolescents, which terrifies me as a parent. We need to actually address the facts. And there is we we got to speak bluntly about this. we got to be straightforward and honest about this. Um, I have. I'm very passionate about this topic and I haven't talked about it uh, really here much because I know I'm probably going to get a lot of flack with it because people will think that I'm trying to take something away from you that I'm not I'm trying to just provide and shed some light on the situation here that these medications have been doing things that people just wouldn't believe and that frankly we're killing people and you know if, if you're willing and you're working with somebody, come off of them. And I can almost guarantee you, if you start addressing other aspects of chronic pain, all the other things that we neglect, all the things that we absolutely ignore when it comes to treating in the standard medical model, again, the one that I'm very well acquainted with where we cut, poke, and drug everything that walks through the door, uh, you can do better. And with that, I'm gonna say, stay well, folks. I invite your comments. If you have any uh, concerns, please let me know. Straight Shot Health Talk, uh, you can either post there or you can email me. Uh, I, if you have counter arguments or criticism, I, I'm welcome to hear that. Please don't do anything that is abusive because I will lead this, but I really want to, um, I want to hear your side of it and just recognize that I, again, I'm not, not trying to, to harm me. I want people to do better. All right, folks, stay well.